This is They Create Worlds, episode 186, Atari's Distribution Nightmare. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we get to go back in time to a wonderful land where video games went up in smoke. The home industry went away, and, um, Alex, the script talks about the video game crash. I know we've done three episodes, and then some filler in the gaps episodes about the video game crash. You're giving me the same script! I know that's a lie, Jeffrey. We don't have scripts. <laughs> no, that's right. We are returning to a couple of topics that should be very familiar to longtime listeners of the show, which are Atari Inc. and the great North American video game crash of 1983-ish. Yes, we did big multi-part episodes on both of these topics, multi-part episodes that to some extent intersected with each other. And yes, this is a topic that comes up as background or on the side or as part of the through line of many other episodes we've done. However, Jeffrey, we've been doing this a long time now. Longer than I'd like to admit sometimes. What do you mean? It's only 2015. Five, six, seven, oh God, eight. Well, to be fair, seven and a half since we started in September. Well, our first episode aired in September. It, it has been eight since we've been like recording these. There was a gap. Anyway, yes, it has been a long time, and my research marches on, history marches on. As I like to say, for something that's already happened, history sure does change a lot all the time. I have a better understanding of certain events that took place, specifically at Atari, that were both part of the crash and which led to Atari's complete and utter downfall, which didn't necessarily have to be an end result of what happened in 1982, but there were a series of self-inflicted wounds that made this entire situation fatal to the company. And I didn't really know a lot of this at the time. I've read more sources, I've interviewed more people, I've done more research. It feels like our analysis of Atari during the crash at this point is kind of creaky and woefully out of date. So I did want to take an episode here and kind of return to that and do a deep focus on Atari in this 1982-84 period and how it intersected the crash. We try not to do a complete repeat of an old episode, so it's not going to be a look at Atari broadly. It's really only going to look at the cartridge situation, and even more specifically the cartridge situation on the 2600. So it's not just a complete retelling of an Atari history that we've done before. In terms of the crash, we're not going to look at the entire crash, what caused it, what happened, what was going on with other companies like Mattel, Coleco, Activision, etc., we're really just going to focus on Atari's contribution to the crash and Atari's response to the crash and how a lot of that response ended up destroying Atari as a company. So even though we're going to be treading a lot of old ground in terms of chronology and big picture events, most of the content of this episode is going to be brand new to the podcast content, and we're not just going to completely retell stories that we've already told in older episodes. Okay, so coming as someone who might have been listening to all of our episodes, skipping around, okay, yeah, you talked about the crash 
how it affected the arcade side, how it affected the coin-op side, all that crazy stuff. Heck, we even had that holistic view of E.T., which really focused in on how E.T. was more a combination of draw-breaking the camel's back than actually being the criminal mastermind of the entire process. Not to mention E.T. was kind of doomed to fail because of all the promised royalties to just get Steven Spielberg to sign the rights off so that they could make a video game. Right. Sort of like our look before where we talked about the 100 Yang coin myth. This is sort of looking back at the specific point of history and looking at the nuances, the new understanding and details. Here's what we understood before. Here's what we understand now at a more nuanced level because we have different sources, different ways of thinking it, new ideas put forth. And like you said, history apparently didn't freeze back there. It's still flowing. Exactly. So when we want to go back to Atari here, we obviously know the crash is 83-84. Where do we want to start picking up the thread and then have a little scenic route detour here? Sure. Well, of course, the big effects of the crash were felt in 1983 and 1984, but it was the events of 1982 that set the stage for this entire thing happening. In large part, it's the things that Atari was doing that created this perfect storm in the first place. We have to understand that even though there's a lot of very dramatic stories about the ETs of the world, the Pac-Mans of the world, Burials in the desert, all of this stuff that people like to romance and mythologize. The crash was really a matter of a distribution problem. That's kind of dry. That's kind of a boring way to look at it. That's not even a way that all of the participants want to look at it. I spoke to one former Atari person recently who really didn't like the idea of thinking of it as a distribution story. He liked to focus on the game quality side and how the game quality declined and there was a need to refocus on quality games, which isn't entirely untrue. That's definitely a thing, but it's not really what caused the crash. Because we've been there many times. I mean, how much shovelware was there on the Wii? A good amount. How much just god-awful excrement was there on the Wii? Obviously, it didn't crash the whole video game market, but it didn't even crash the whole Wii market. Because the Wii had a very, very successful run, despite all the nonsense that was being thrown on it. Even though there is a quality story, sure. There's a story around DT, sure. It's not like something like this isn't a multifaceted beast with many causes, many reasons. But you can't really explain it by game quality. You can't really explain it by the number of publishers in the market. Look at the NES market. The NES, everybody and their brother jumped in that market by the end of it. There were dozens of companies releasing games for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Some of those were pretty wretched, too. You know, if you look at other periods in video game history, those specific issues don't do it. Game quality doesn't tank things alone. Too many people releasing too many games in the market doesn't tank things alone. These are not the things that destroy the industry. Do they play a role? Yes, sure. But at the end of the day, if you want to boil something as complex as the crash down to a single overriding issue, which in itself is a little bit of a reductive exercise and doesn't fully capture what happened, but if you want to boil it down to one thing above all others that created the situation, it was a distribution crisis. It wasn't that there were too many companies releasing bad games. It's that there were too many games of all levels of quality from 
all companies being forced into the marketplace at one time, and the marketplace could not handle it. It was the response to this overstuffing of the market that led the entire thing to fall apart. Atari is really our main culprit here, but it's in a way understandable. I mean, many, many mistakes were made. We're not trying to excuse mistakes, but it's kind of understandable how the situation could develop because Atari was used to being not just on top of the market, but completely dominating the entire market. We have to remember, as we've talked about many times, that before Activision came along, founded in 1979, but released its first games in 1980, there was no such thing as a third-party console developer. There was no such thing as other companies coming in and putting product onto your system. It didn't happen. It was understood that if you put out a hardware system, you were also putting out all of the software for it. We've talked about that before in terms of how Atari thought that they were going to be the entire market. I mean, in 1981, when there were just a couple of third-party developers, because even at that stage, it was basically just Activision and Games by Apollo got like one game out in December, like right under the gun. It really wasn't until 1982 that you saw the explosion. In 1981, there were just a couple of third-party publishers. Even then, Atari had about 80% of the total market in video game systems. They had an estimated 3 million out of an estimated 4.1 million consoles sold that year were Atari systems. There are various estimates on cartridge sales. All of this is estimates because we don't have the real numbers from the real sources, but one estimate says that there were 29.3 million cartridges sold for the Atari VCS that year. We're not talking about in television, Odyssey 2, other systems, just VCS. And Atari sold 26.5 million of those. That's 90% of the cartridge market in 1981, when there were just a couple of third-party developers, essentially. Activision and Games by Apollo was it. A Magic had been founded, but a Magic didn't release any games until 1982. So it was basically just those two. They were used to having the entire market under their control. Even as the third parties came in and started making some inroads, they still had 90% of the cartridge market. This is how they saw themselves. They saw themselves as the company that, regardless, was going to get the majority of the sales, especially if they kept locking up all of the hottest licenses, which at this point in 1981, they had been successful in doing. They had the Space Invaders license. They had the Pac-Man license. Pac-Man doesn't launch until 82, but they got the license in 81. At this point, basically, they've gotten all the hot arcade licenses. They see themselves as continuing to be on the top. And there's been scarcity. We've talked about this before as well. No one's ever been able to get all of the product that they wanted. You had distributors over-ordering in order to get what they wanted. Since everyone was on allotment, which means that regardless of what you ask for, we're going to see what everybody asked for, and then we're going to allocate based on how big a customer there are, how big their sales volume is, and you'll get a percentage based on our overall stock, depending on how big and important and successful you are. Everyone's on allocation, which means nobody gets what they want. Their numbers always get rounded down, or not rounded down, but adjusted down. So companies would overorder. They would order 200% of what they need in order to hopefully get 100% of what they need, because if they order 100% of what they need, they'll just get 50% of what they need. It's an incredibly supply-constrained market. In this environment where everything was constrained, you also have companies literally stealing from each other. 
There are stories from Atari employees, stories told in uh, Connie Brooks' biography of Steve Ross, uh, Master of the Game, which has a lot of Atari material in it, since Atari was so important to Warner in the uh, early 1980s. There are stories about how companies would try to steal each other's orders on the loading dock. They'd send a truck to the warehouse to the loading dock and try to bluster their way, pretend that they were there for this other company, and try to literally steal their allotment on the loading dock. That's how crazy things were. They didn't do sales forecasting at Atari. The sales forecasting at Atari was going to manufacturing, asking manufacturing how many cartridges they could produce this year. And that was their sales forecast because they've never been able to meet demand. The real problem starts not just because there are third parties popping up. I mean, that's a thing that's obviously going to change the dynamic a little bit. But the real problem actually goes before that. The real problem goes all the way back when they were setting up their initial kind of network of distributors. It goes all the way back to when Bill Grubb came onto the company in 1979. I'm not pointing fingers at him specifically. I'm just saying it goes all the way back to that period when Bill Grubb was hired in 1979 as the new head of sales and marketing at Atari and when Atari under Ray Kassar was first really trying to build itself out. The video game business in its very early days, in the 70s, it was a department store business. Not exclusively, but that's where a lot of the product was moving through. The reason for that is it's hard to remember. It's hard to even think about. Even for people Jeffrey and myself's age, who were kids during the NES era, it's hard to remember that there was a time when video games were new, where nobody knew what that was, and it was scary and frightening. If you're having a kid in the 1970s, if you have a 10-year-old in 1979, that means you had that kid in 1969. Let's say you were 25 when you had that kid in 1969. You were born in the 40s to have that kid that you had at the end of the 60s who is now graduating to these newfangled video game things in the late 70s. Can you imagine being a child in the 1950s and then these video games coming along in the 1970s? It's completely removed from anything that was in your realm of understanding, unless you're one of the very rare people that got deeply into the math and sciences and are like a university professor or an engineer, which is not a large portion of the population. This is something completely foreign to this generation. So video games weren't just something you went to the store and it's like, oh, there's a new video game out. I'll go buy that video game system. That looks neat. Video games are expensive. Remember, these things are between $150 and $200, depending on uh, whose system we're talking about. And again, we're talking in the late 70s is where we've gone back to. These first programmable systems are between $150 and $200. That is a massive amount of money in that period of time. A period of time when the U.S. has been absolutely strangled by inflation and has had bouts with recession. There's been the oil crisis. This is not the greatest economic period in American history, and it's at this exact moment that these video game companies are like, here's a new toy that costs $150 to $200. No toys cost $150 to $200 in 1979. Most toys were somewhere in the neighborhood of 
one to five dollars. Mm-hmm. The really cool toy was twenty dollars, and you had to be some sort of crazy maniac if you asked for thirty. Yeah, this is all a long way of saying video games needed to be demonstrated. I don't just mean having demo kiosks set up, which they had, just like if you go into stores today, they'll have a PS5 set up where you can demo it or whatever. I mean, they had those back then, but that wasn't enough. You needed trained staff that could actually sit there and talk you through it, almost like having a car salesman. Not quite the same thing, because there's less variation and they are cheaper than cars, but, you know, you needed somebody there to, like, walk you through the various models and explain to you the differences and explain to you the value proposition and all of this, just like a major appliance sale, just like somebody selling washing machines or dishwashers back in the day. Because of that, video games weren't found in Walmart. They weren't found in Kmart. These so-called mass-market retailers or uh, discount mass merchandisers, I guess is what you would call them. This is not where video games were, and they weren't even in toy stores all of that much because of this need for dedicated staff. They were in department stores because department stores are set up on a model that you have the various departments of the store and you have lots of staff there that can help you look at the products in their department that are experts in their department. That's how the department store is set up. That's where Atari was doing its early sales. That's where most of its early business was with Sears. They did not need a lot of additional infrastructure for selling game consoles because they were mostly just doing it through the department stores and and dealing with them directly. When Bill Grubb came into the company, Atari was still doing the vast majority of its business through Sears. You know, this was Kassar's area, too, because Ray Kassar had been in the textile industry, had been with Burlington Industries. Burlington did most of its sales in that period of time through the department stores, and Ray had been brought on to improve sales of the home console stuff. He came on as a consultant as head of the consumer division before he was made CEO. That's the area where they were kind of comfortable in. It was Bill Grubb's job to move them out of that, and it was Bill Grubb who really built their first wide distribution network that allowed them to break out of the department stores a little bit and start getting into some of these other kinds of stores. As they were building their distribution network, there was very little video game industry, and there was no conception of third party. In the late 70s, there was Atari. Fairchild was just getting out of it. There was Bally, who was also desperately trying to get out of it and were very small. And Mattel was just about to come in, but they hadn't quite come in yet. They did a limited test release in 1979, but they weren't in yet. Then there was Magnavox. Magnavox used its own dealer network. They had a closed system. We talked about that a little bit in the context of the original Odyssey before, but even in the context of the Odyssey 2, this was true. They didn't go out of their closed distribution network until 1982. There really wasn't anyone else other than Atari that was trying to get into all of these places on a big scale. And I bring that up because there was a very interesting decision made. I'm not sure it started in Grubb's tenure. It may have started before that. I can't pinpoint with the sources I have when they first really set up their distribution network. So again, I'm not pointing fingers at Bill Grubb here. It's just this is the period of time when he was in charge, 79 to 81, is when they were really starting to get national distribution. They didn't have the foresight or didn't have the capability, I don't know the reason why, but they didn't make their distributors exclusive to Atari. 
what I mean by this is when you have sales reps repping your product, a sales rep will be repping a bunch of different products at the same time. Because these are middlemen that take the product that you're selling, use their network of contacts to go around to all the retailers that sell your kinds of product, and then offer your product to them for sale. And they work on a commission basis. Hey, buddy, you want to buy a video game? Got lots of video games right here. Exactly. But they may also be selling toothpaste or stereos or insert whatever product you want here. You know, they're selling a lot of different products. They don't make enough money on any one product to keep the company going. They rep several different product lines in order to make ends meet. Now, while you're having that shower in the morning, you're going to need some toothpaste. Here's a nice boom box so that you can listen to that music <laughs> while you take that shower. Once you're done with your shower and your toothbrushing, pasting thing, you can turn off that music and play this fine video game. Yes. Now, obviously, there's a lot of room for conflict of interest in this kind of setup, because you want to make sure that if the company is selling your toothpaste, that they're also not selling some other company's toothpaste, because then you could get in a situation where you end up in a bidding war and, you know, you do better by them, give them a higher commission, and then they sell your toothpaste much more aggressively than they sell the other guy's toothpaste. Now, the market takes care of a lot of that, right? Because if you're selling two products and one is doing much better than the other, there's diminishing returns and you get dropped by the other guy and they find another sales rep. In a lot of instances, the market would just take care of that. Of course, as the video game industry develops, everything is in short supply. So there is no market force that's going to cause that because everything's out of demand. In that kind of situation, you need a standard exclusivity agreement with a sales rep, which is a very standard thing. It's not unusual, which is basically saying, as long as you are selling this type of product for us, you are not allowed to sell this type of product for anyone else. If you're selling our video games, yeah, you can sell stereos for this guy and toothpaste for that guy. I doubt there's a single rep out there that's in the video game toothpaste boombox business, but that doesn't matter for our example. What about Big Jeffrey's boombox <laughs> toothpaste and video game emporium where we have all of your life <laughs> needs met because I will make this crap up as much as I can. <laughs> sure. Big Jeffrey had a very interesting life. Sometime we'll have to do the podcast on the complete story of Big Jeffrey's emporium. <laughs> Ah, uh, there's a fan fiction in there someplace. It frightens me. But anyway, the point is, you usually sign up one of these guys to be exclusive to you for the product category to make sure that that kind of conflict of interest doesn't occur. But as Atari's building its network, they don't sign exclusivity contracts. I have a theory about that. You're saying that they have no concept around this time of them not being the dominant dog. Right. All previous video games, you had person makes the hardware, person puts out the software. There's no concept of that not happening. So when they're doing the contract, it's like, well, there's nothing competing with me. I own this market. I am Atari. I am God. Worship <laughs> me. Right. I don't think they would even have in their brains that it would be even possible for there to be true competition. Right, on the scale that it occurred. I think that's correct. They didn't sign anyone to exclusivity contracts, which means that when the industry blew up, when third parties broke through, when the Activisions of the world broke through, and then in 1982, when all of these companies decided to come in, 
One thing that could have cooled the market, that could have caused the market to not be so glutted, it would have been very hard for all of these companies to come in and individually build up their own nationwide sales network, nationwide distribution network. But they didn't have to because Atari had already built a large nationwide distribution network and they had not signed any of these distributors to exclusive contracts. The product was in incredibly short supply and nobody was getting as much as they wanted. So it behooved the sales reps to go out and buy cartridges from other companies than Atari and represent other companies besides Atari. These distributors started buying from everybody who had a product, and they could because Atari didn't lock them down. Because there was not enough product, it's not like sales of other people's product came at the expense of Atari's product, because everything was selling out. So it just meant that everybody was making more money. But what it meant was that Atari built its competition, essentially. Because that sales network, that distribution network that Atari used, was tappable by just about anybody. It was an oversight. It's something that couldn't have necessarily been predicted in 77, 78, 79, when the console was just starting to be sold. But they kind of created their own competition. That's what really got them into trouble. Now, flashing forward again, as we talk about the end of 1981 going into 1982, they can tell that in 1981, even with Activision out there, that they had around 90% of the cartridge market on the VCS. They knew they had Pac-Man coming. They knew they had big licenses. They knew that 1982, the market was going to keep growing. As a result, they continued to act like they were going to be 90% of the market. They did their sales and manufacturing forecasts the same way they always did. How many can we make? That will sell, because that's what the market has been ever since Space Invaders finally caused the console to really take off in 1980. That's the way the market has been. How much can we make equals how much we can sell. Already at the start of 1982, they're starting to drastically overproduce. They don't realize that what they're doing is drastically overproducing, but that's what's happening. The big question on everybody's mind at Atari in 1982 is how do we reform our distribution in a way that allows us to continue to control our market in a way that makes sense? By early 1982, everything is a mess. Because of this lack of supply to meet demand, you have the situation, like I said, where customers are literally trying to steal each other's orders on the loading dock. You have distributors moving in on each other's sales territory. And you also have the situation that we've talked about before, where some of Atari's bigger and more prominent distribution partners are able to kind of do their own little side hustles where they work directly with some retailers that also work directly with Atari. So you have retailers that are doing double ordering by ordering from a major Atari distributor and then ordering direct from Atari, again, for the same reason, hoping that if they put orders in in two different places, they'll get enough at the end of the day. The entire distribution situation was chaotic at the beginning of the year. And the question was, how do they fix this? Michael Moon, who was the president of the Atari Consumer Electronics Division at this time, really felt the way to take care of this was to do away with this entire distribution system altogether. Warner Communications is a big conglomerate. 
One of the main businesses of Warner Communications is Warner Records. They're in the music business. They're in the movie business, music business, lots of businesses. But Warner Records is a pretty big deal. It's one of the major labels. Through the music business, they have a nationwide distribution business via Warner Music, which at the time wasn't called Warner Music. It was called uh, Warner Electra Atlantic or WEA because it was a merger of those three music businesses, Warner Electra and Atlantic. Michael Moon actually proposed that WEA take over the entirety of Atari's distribution because they already have a national presence and they're selling into a lot of the same outlets that video games are selling into. Obviously, they also have like music stores, record stores and kind of their own unique thing going on. It's not a one for one, but they already have a national distribution network. And he saw this as a way that they could reorganize and get rid of a lot of this backbiting and infighting amongst distributors is just have one national guy that is dealing direct with all of these retailers and getting rid of these middlemen that are causing the whole thing to screw up. For whatever reason, Ray Kassar refuses to do this. He does not want to do this. I say for whatever reason, but my understanding from talking to people at Atari is that Ray Kassar really believed that the sales rep was an indispensable part of the ecosystem. His opinion was that your sales rep was your person on the ground that could tell you what was really going on in their territory. If you're doing everything in-house, you're kind of removed from the retail scene because, you know, this is before everything's computerized. This is before they have super advanced inventory tracking. You want to figure out what's selling, how much you've sold. Eventually, there will be paper reports that will filter back through as the distributor reports back to you. But if you want on-the-ground instantaneous feedback on how things are doing right now, and you need this information right now because you're doing your strategic planning for the next quarter and beyond, without computerization, your method was sending someone to the store, counting how many units are still on the rack, and comparing that to how many units the store ordered. That's how you knew what was selling. When you have a national sales force, you're not as embedded in the individual regions as a sales rep is. You're a little more removed from it because since you're covering the whole country instead of a region, you can't have your employees in every last outpost in every last region of the country, whereas a sales rep, since they're focusing on a specific region, their employees can be more efficiently deployed in that region and they have a little more granular idea of what's going on. Ray Kassar felt that the sales rep was an indispensable link in the chain. This is what I've heard from salespeople that are at Atari. This isn't just me speculating. So he refused to give up those links to the sales reps. He wanted somebody with their ear to the ground that could quickly tell what's going on. And that really fits in with a lot of what I understand about Ray Kassar's management style in general. It makes sense because I've talked to a lot of people about Ray Kassar at this point. People that were his direct reports. I've talked to like nearly a dozen people that were direct reports to Ray Kassar. So I mean... I've gotten kind of a sense of what his management style was, and he always wanted to be able to know what was going on. He would jump outside the chain of command. If he felt that his direct reports didn't have all the information that he needed on a specific area of responsibility for them, he would call their subordinates that were closer to whatever issue he wanted to learn more about in order to try to get the answer from them. He was a very much a keep-your-ear-to-the-ground, keep-an-eye-on-all-levels kind of guy. He didn't like to be removed. He didn't like to be in the ivory tower and completely cut off from what was going on. And so he really felt sales reps were necessary. As a result of this belief, 
When they had an opportunity in early 1982 to try to straighten out this distribution situation with Mike Moon's idea of let's just give it all to WEA, let them handle it, and get rid of this vicious cycle that has developed with our sales reps and distributors fighting over product, Ray Kassar said no. And this was the first point where they may have been able to do something. I mean, we don't want to get too far into counterfactuals because those are always messier. You can't just say, but for this one thing, everything would have unfolded in a completely different manner. But it's a fact that at the beginning of the year, Mike Moon tried to do something about the chaotic distribution situation, and Ray Kassar said no. There were people at Warner, the parent company, that were starting to see that there was a problem here. The Warner Records people, who are the closest analogs in Warner to what Atari's doing, because the movie business, it's a completely different distribution model. Remember, this is before VHS has really taken off, so there are home sales of movies are almost non-existent. It's still almost all theater at this point. There's a book publishing business that's kind of analogous as well, but it's a little different. Like, music is the closest thing in the company to what Atari's doing. The WEA people throughout 1982 are starting to really get a look at this. I mean, they don't get detailed reports about what's going on at Atari since it's a different business line, but they do get some reports on what's going on in that part of the business. The Warner Music people are freaking out. Because they can see that this inventory is starting to back up. And they know, because it happens in the music business when you have an album you're sure is going to be a hit and then it doesn't sell. They know what can happen when you get an inventory glut. They know what a disaster that can be. At Warner, there's starting to be some rumblings in 1982 that things may be in trouble. And there's starting to be a push from other parts of the company to do something about this distribution situation distribution, it it may not be the sexiest aspect of this, but this is where the real conflict that is beginning to crash Atari is unfolding. What I find interesting at this point, just to point this out for people who may have listened to some of the older episodes, is from what we knew from the narrative before, Atari had no clue what was going on and was just saying, everything's great, Warner. Warner's like, yep, everything's great. La, 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 la. This is actually really fascinating here where we're seeing rumblings from a completely separate part of Warner saying, hey, you got a distribution problem here. We need to fix this. And Atari is more like, everything's fine. La, 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 la. Exactly. You know, Atari is part of the Warner Communications empire. The chairman of Warner Communications is Steve Ross. Steve Ross is not a day-to-day manager. He's not detail-oriented. That's not the part of the business he enjoys. He also far prefers hanging out with the movie and music stars than he does hanging out with video game programmers, so he personally doesn't keep much of an eye on Atari. Under Ross is an office of the president, which oversees the day-to-day runnings of the Warner Empire. The reason it's called the Office of the President is because there are several people, it fluctuates over time between three and four people, with an equal degree of control in the company, but specific to their areas of the business that they're assigned to watch over. So instead of calling them like co-presidents, which kind of gives the idea that they're all running everything equally, Ross created this idea of the Office of the President. That's what the title of these individuals were. Their titles were Office of the President. Each of them had responsibility for a specific part of the Warner Empire. As we've talked about before, the person in charge of Atari 
within the office of the president of Warner was Manny Girard. By 1982, Atari is the tail wagging the dog at Warner. This is a period of time when the movie industry is in a real slump. It's starting to come back, but you had that whole new wave cinema thing that went on in the late 60s and into the 70s. As movies became more interesting artistically, they became less appealing to the general public. There was kind of a decline there. Star Wars has already come out by now, and Jaws, and the idea of the summer blockbuster is on the cusp of revitalizing this. But that's still a process that's ongoing. This is a period of time when movies aren't necessarily going that great. The music industry has also been in decline. There hasn't really been a massive, massive hit in the music industry since Fleetwood Mac's Rumors in 1977, which I believe was Warner Records, by the way. But kind of the music industry was in a doldrums here as it was switching gears. The disco fad has ended up not being necessarily sustained. I'm not a music historian, so you know, musicologists are probably snickering at me uh, at my oversimplicity here, but whatever. You know, punk and new wave are in the underground now, but they haven't broken through the mainstream yet. And there's kind of a period in here where the music industry is in a bit of decline as well. So Warner's core businesses aren't doing great, and video games are. Just to give an example, even in 1982, where things started to go bad, in 1982, Atari contributed 50% of Warner's revenues. All by itself, 50%, half, and 65% of its operating profit. It was the tail wagging the dog. It was crushing all of Warner's other businesses. Steve Ross was not a young guy. He wasn't imminently going anywhere. But at some point, Steve Ross was going to be retiring or dying or whatever. Jockeying for position is going on during this time. And, of course, that jockeying is fiercest in the office of the president, because who is the most logical person to succeed Steve Ross but one of the people in the office of the president who are already managing large chunks of the company? Manny Girard saw Atari as his rocket ship straight to the top, as the heir apparent of Steve Ross. He had a, something of a vested interest in assuring everybody that everything was going great over there. Because this was key to his strategy to maybe run Warner Communications someday. I think that plays into some of the Atari, you know, everything's fine, everything's fine. I'm not sure that Manny wanted to know if everything was not fine. Certainly there's, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and Manny in this period was pretty hands-off. Ray was basically running the show with very little oversight. I mean, he, he has to report to Manny. It's not that Manny didn't look at it at all, but most of the day-to-day -day was left completely in Ray's hands. Nobody above him was really meddling in what was going on. The numbers were big, and because the numbers were big, everyone wanted it to just be fine, and I think Manny wanted it to just be fine. I think there was a little willful ignorance going on there, but certainly other parts of the company that weren't so dependent on Atari as their golden goose, I think we're starting to see some of these cracks starting to show. Certainly the record people were because they ran a similar business and they kind of understood how this thing works. 1982 starts very strong for Atari because they do have that Pac-Man license, even though there are more and more companies coming in. Even though there's going to be more and more third-party product coming, and even though they're going to start having competition for some of the hottest licenses, 
early 1982 is still Atari time, and it's the time of Pac-Man, which they release in the first quarter. Pac-Man Day is officially in April, but street dates weren't a thing back then. It was really on sale by about the middle of March. $35 list price, a little more expensive than most other cartridges, which are usually more in the $25 to $30 range. I think in part because they know that this is going to be such a massive hit because Pac-Man is just the biggest thing ever seen in video games, and now it's coming home. First quarter results for Atari are very good. For Warner, rather. I will sometimes mistakenly say results for Atari, but we have to remember Atari is not a public company. Warner is the public company. You can spin off a subsidiary as a public company, but that has not happened with Atari. So when earnings are reported, it's actually Warner reporting the earnings. Warner does have a fiscal year that corresponds with the calendar year. So their fiscal year is January to December. That's not the case with every company, but that makes it very easy for us looking at the crash here because they don't have a weird fiscal year. The first quarter, January to March, is very good for Warner and very good for Atari. Profits are up. There's year-over-year growth. This quarter in 82 was better than this uh, quarter in 81. Pac-Man, even though it's only been on sale for a few weeks, has already sold 1 million units. Now remember, that's what Warner sold. They may not have all sold through at retail yet, but that's what Warner and Atari have been able to sell to retailers. Already sold more than a million. Three other Atari cartridges. I don't know which ones. This just comes from their press releases and reports, so they didn't list the others out. Three others cartridges also sold one million units. It's good times. But already the inventories are starting to pile up. Already, because there's so many companies that are introducing new product that have come to the January CES and said, hey, we're entering the video game business. These are the titles we'll be offering later this year. Again, at the June CES, you know, companies coming in saying this is what's coming this year. It's already starting to become clear in many circles that there is a glut developing, that there are too many companies feeding the market, and because Atari has continued to act like they are 90% of that VCS cartridge market all by themselves— and because distributors and retailers haven't stopped their incredible, you know, double ordering and that kind of thing, that there is a glut of product building up. The Atari people don't seem very concerned about it at this point. We have to remember that back then it, it really was largely a holiday business. Now, it had transitioned to a year-round business. I mean, they released Pac-Man when they did, very strategically. They tried to have at least one big release a quarter to try to keep cartridge sales moving along. But it is still true that 50% or more of sales are generally achieved in the Christmas season. That's when most of the hardware is purchased, because the hardware is more expensive. But that's also when a great deal of the software is purchased, is in that holiday season. Atari wasn't worried in the summer that their warehouses were filling up because they considered this to be a logical inevitability. We know the orders are going to be there, they basically thought. We know our patterns in the past. We know Christmas is going to be big. Okay, maybe we have a few more items in the warehouses right now than we usually do this time of year, but these things are going to have a long tail and there's going to be massive buying at Christmas. And then once the stock that they've already ordered, is sold out early in the Christmas season, they'll place reorders for the remainder of the Christmas season, and this product's going to move. Once again, the record people are really skeptical about this. 
In fact, in June 1982, Jack Holtzman, who is the founder of Elektra Records, part of WEA, Elektra was bought by Warner, and is on the Atari board. He knows what's going on at Atari more than a lot of other people at Warner do. As a board member, he's not seeing the day-to-day, but he gets more regular reports than some people do. He's on the board at Atari. He writes a letter to Steve Ross saying that they need to sell the company. As he told Connie Bruck, this is a direct quote from Holtzman to Connie Bruck, master of the game, I thought the game business was going to fall apart. Anything that spikes like that is going to come down again. They had these clearly bloated inventories. They believed the cartridges would have a long shelf life, but I was in the record business, and I knew better. The console business was becoming a hits-driven business. It really hadn't been in the beginning because there were no hits. When we're talking about 1977, when the Atari VCS was released, there weren't that many truly hit arcade games. There were a small number, but there weren't that many. The business was predicated on creating these kind of simple, fun games that you could play over and over, and some of them were actually fun and some of them were not fun. But, you know, there were sports games, there were educational games, there were board game and card game analogs. There were simple arcade conversions like Video Olympics, Air Sea Battle, and Combat, which replicated a variety of games like Pong, Tank, Anti-Aircraft, etc. that had been in the arcades. But it really wasn't a hits-driven business then. So those 77 cartridges and 78 cartridges and 79 cartridges, they were still being sold in 1981, 1982. Were they Atari's leading sellers at that point? Well, of course not. But they were still on the market because it had started out as a very different business. But after Space Invaders, it started becoming a hits-driven business where the big arcade titles are the titles that are going to sell. Or as time goes on, people trying to get the big licenses outside of arcades as well, like the infamous E.T. It's becoming hits-driven, mostly on the back of licenses, though as we'll see later on, it's not all about that. In a hits-driven business, your back catalog loses value very quickly because everyone is just chasing the next big thing. Holtzman has figured out that the video game business has become a hits-driven business, just like the music industry is very much a hits-driven business. The implication here is that Holtzman believes that Atari has not figured this out yet. I don't know why. I mean, Ray Kassar did come from the textile industry, which is not a hits-driven business. Yes, you design new textiles, you know, every so often and have seasons of stuff and whatnot, but it's not really the same kind of hits-driven businesses and entertainment businesses. So I don't know if Ray Kassar was blind to it because he just didn't come out of that business. A lot of the other guys coming on at this time also came out of the commodities business. I mean, Mike Moon was from the toy industry, so Mike Moon may have had a better understanding But some of the other high-level executives coming in at this time came out of the commodities business as well. American Can and Dixie Paper Cups and all of these things. I wonder if some of these executives that were more used to commodities were just kind of slow to realize that the VCS was no longer really a commodity, that VCS games were no longer really a commodity where all of the cartridges were interchangeable but was a business where people were actually going to be just chasing the latest big thing and not caring about the back catalog. They're continuing to manufacture at least to a small degree. I mean, it's not like they're making millions and millions of their older games anymore. I mean, they understand that Pac-Man's going to sell more than some random game they released in 1978. They're all still out there. Space Invaders they're still manufacturing quite a bit of. 
all these games are still out there. That's part of what's causing the backup. And this confidence that all of that stuff is going to sell later in the year, Holtzman doesn't share it because he knows from the record business that that's not the way it works. And of course, at the exact same moment, this is the exact same period of time, middle of 1982, that CoinOp, which we're not going to talk about in detail this time, hits a wall because CoinOp became a hits-driven business and arcade operators were driving themselves bankrupt trying to keep the latest hits in stock. And so they just had to stop buying games, essentially. Holtzman sees this kind of dynamic developing in the home business, but Atari doesn't seem to see it yet. But the press really starts to see it after the June CES. Because at the June CES, this is really when the tidal wave of third-party product becomes apparent. Because the way CES works, there are two CESs a year, January and June. The January one is basically the the pie-in-the-sky one where people start previewing their wild new stuff, their wild new electronics they're going to have in the coming year. But it's all still very theoretical, very pie-in-the-sky. It's to generate excitement and to get on people's radar. The June CES is the one where you bring your real tangible product and start trying to secure orders for the holiday season. By the June CES, when all of these companies are starting to show their wares, all of these third parties, it becomes really clear to analysts and buyers and the press that, oh my gosh, there is way too much product. Talk begins to circulate in the press that there is a market saturation coming. Here's the thing that we have to remember, and that it's hard to see sometimes in hindsight because we know what happened. At the time, everyone believed a shakeout was coming. I think it's fair to say even Atari by this time believed a shakeout was coming. But everybody thought it was going to be these small fly-by-night companies that disappeared. Everyone figured the big players would be fine. So even though there was talk of a shakeout, There wasn't a talk of Atari falling apart, Mattel falling apart, Activision falling apart, Parker Brothers falling apart. Most of these small guys, I mean, they didn't all get national distribution. Some of them got better distribution than they otherwise would because they could piggyback on the Atari network and all of that. It's not like they were going into all the department stores, all the major retailers, all of that. A lot of them were having to go into smaller retailers or retailers that were not traditional. So nobody thought that the big boys were going to be the ones failing here. So I think Atari continued to be confident that even though Pac-Man sales slowed a bit in the summer, which they did, and that even though they were starting to get some backups in their warehouses, they were still very confident that at the end of the year, it was all going to move out. Second quarter, April to June, 1982. Warner still has year-over-year growth. We've talked about this in other episodes, but one of the things people loved in this period about Warner is that for like 30 consecutive quarters, Warner grew year over year in comparison to the previous quarter. 1982, quarter two, they grew more than they did in 1981, when they grew more than they did in second quarter 1980, back and back and back. This is what made them a Wall Street darling. They did it again in second quarter 1982, but earnings were down over the first quarter when Pac-Man had been such a big hit. Analysts had been projecting that their earnings would be a little higher. It was just informal analyst projections. It's nothing to get excited about. But this is the first time that Warner has not performed quite where analysts thought it would. There are hints of cracks in the facade. Some analysts begin to sell their positions in Warner stock at this time because they're starting to see some cracks in the facade. 
Atari, meanwhile, is pushing ahead, and they really up their marketing spin for the last half of the year. $35 million ad campaign for the holiday season. They do see that they do have to blast through the noise a little bit because there are more companies coming in. So one of the things that they can do that is take advantage of huge advertising spendings. Their advertising spend is increasing at the same time as their product is starting to move a little more slowly. It's just more financial pressures on top of everything. On August 11, 1982, this again comes from Connie Brooks' thoroughly researched Steve Ross biography, Master of the Game. She had access to a lot of internal sources and internal records. Atari prepared an inventory report that showed that they had substantial excess inventory of basically every cartridge. They're already backing up in the middle of the year. So on August 24th, 1982, the financial people at Warner, Warner headquarters, Burt Wasserman, who had been the CFO for a long time, and Fred Tepperman, who's the new CFO, chief financial officer, visit Atari because they're getting these disturbing inventory reports about product backing up in warehouses. They have a little powwow, and at the end of it, Warner puts out revised projection because public companies also have to provide guidance throughout the year as to what they think their situation is going to be like when they report their earnings. And if they're too far off, if their guidance is too far off from their actual results, that opens them up to legal liability. So they revise their projections in August, calling for Atari's earnings to be for the year to be 23% lower than they had previously projected in May. Third quarter. July to September. For the first time, Warner is in real trouble. Atari product is not moving. Atari is one of the primary movers of Warner profits these days. It is clear that this serious glut has appeared in the marketplace. The retail landscape is also shifting in 1982 a little bit. The main thing that's changed in 1982 is those discount mass merchant retailers that I told you about that were basically not in the business before. They get in the business in a big way in 1982. I'm talking about the Kmarts of the world, the Walmarts of the world, though Kmart's the bigger retailer than Walmart in this period of time of history. For the first time, video games are familiar enough to the public that you don't necessarily need dedicated trained sales staff to sell video game cartridges anymore. This is another thing that is fueling this new glut of product in the marketplace. You have all of these new companies coming in, but now you have a bunch of new retailers coming in as well that have never been involved before. Kmarts, but not just Kmarts. Grocery stores. An interesting thing, Jeffrey, when I was researching Crash episode I did with Video Game History Time Machine, because I was curious where some of these games were being sold. And one of the third parties that came in during this time period is a company called U.S. Games. It became a subsidiary of Quaker Oats, which is not as weird as it sounds because Quaker Oats owned Fisher-Price. So Quaker Oats was in the toy business. It was the era of conglomerates. They were not just an oatmeal company. I always point that out because people are always like, and Quaker Oats got in the video game business. It's like, no, Quaker Oats didn't get in the video game business. Fisher-Price did, essentially. It's okay. It's fine. It's not weird like that. I digress. I was looking up to see where some of these games, because my theory was that probably some of these smaller companies, they probably weren't getting into Sears so much. They probably weren't getting into Toys R Us. You know, they probably weren't getting into the big chains as much. I actually found an ad for U.S. games in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Really? That had a list of all of the outlets that their games were available in in the St. Louis area. Sears wasn't on that list. 
Famous Bar was not on that list. You remember them. Yes. Most people listen to this won't know what I'm talking about. Venture wasn't on that list. Again, these are local St. Louis kind of department store institutions that no longer exist. Famous Bar was bought by Macy's. Venture, I think, was bought by Kohl's. It was a similar kind of store to Kohl's. But the kind of department stores were not on that list. But you know what stores were on this list of places where you could buy their game Space Jockey, Jeffrey? Schnooks? Yes! Schnooks and Deerbergs. Oh, gosh. For those of you that are not from the St. Louis area and don't know, those are grocery store chains, local regional grocery store chains in the St. Louis area. Yeah, Deerberg's is the really expensive one. Schnucks is still pretty expensive, but okay. I tend to get a lot of my groceries from a combination of Vooler Food, which is a Kroger <laughs> discount one, and or Aldi's. Right. Schnooks is essentially like a Kroger, but Schnooks is only in a radius around St. Louis. I mean, they're in other parts of Illinois and Missouri, but it's a hyper-local kind of Kroger thing. But the point is, they weren't in the department stores. They were in some of the grocery stores. Yep. That sounds crazy. But then again, we saw that infrastructure here. You recall that in our local Schnooks, there actually was this entire dedicated section where they had videotapes you could rent, video games you could Mm -hmm. rent other toy amusement yep. things. And it was always the thing, oh, go grocery shopping with mom. Yeah, can we rent a movie? This is how I watch <laughs> a lot of really weird movies. <laughs> yeah, sure. But these are not the prime locations. Places like grocery stores do not make up the vast majority of electronic game sales. No. We have surveys of this. They just don't. 7-Eleven was selling video game cartridges in 1982. This whole world was opening up and retail was coming in to take a lot of this additional glutted merchandise. It's kind of interesting, and this this is a slight tangent, but I do have some market surveys, and these are, again, they're all estimates. That's all we have. But one of the major market research firms, Frost & Sullivan, did a study, a survey of electronic game sales in 1982 to kind of see where game sales were concentrated. At that time, department stores were still the leading sellers. Almost 50% of sales were coming through department stores. Then the discount mass merchandisers like Kmart, they were number two with about 30% of the sales. Toy stores were actually a very small part of the equation. There's this tendency to think that video games used to be considered toys because in the NES era, they were really pushed heavily by toy stores. But in this period, toy stores made up less than 2% of video game sales nationwide, largely because it was only the big chains that got involved with it. Toys R Us was heavily involved in it. Some of their competition was, but the mom and pops were less involved. There were still a lot of mom and pop toy stores back then, and they were just too expensive of products for these stores with very small margins to be able to take on. However, when you look at games as a percentage of total sales of a type of store, toy stores led the way. Even though toy stores only accounted for 1.3%, according to this one survey, of all video game sales, Video games made up 17.3% of toy store sales. Toy stores were becoming dependent on the video game industry because the margins were so much better than their traditional products, even though in the grand scheme of things, toy stores were selling very few video games. The toy industry was becoming dependent, even though it made up almost nothing in terms of the overall volume. It's just some very interesting retail stuff. It's a bit of a tangent, but I wanted to get that in there. The main point that I'm making, though, is that these discount mass merchandisers are becoming major players in 1982. They're starting to order vast quantities of product to establish themselves in this space. 
it wouldn't surprise me, I don't have scientific proof of this, but it wouldn't surprise me if mass merchandisers were starting to over-order in order to get into this new field, and that was leading also to some of the production issues and leading to some of the glut. Because I have to imagine that some of these new retailers coming in requesting more product than they could actually reasonably sell, in addition to all the traditional partners asking for too much product because they're used to not getting what they want. It's just a whole mess. The entire ecosystem is torn apart. And in the third quarter of 1982, to get back to where we were, Warner is for the first time going to show no growth. They're still going to be profitable, but they're not going to show year-over-year growth for the first time. So they do two very interesting things. First of all, because of leap year and all of this stuff, even though a year is technically 52 weeks, every so often, I don't know what the frequency is, but every so often in corporate reporting, you end up with a 53-year week because calendars aren't completely balanced and equal. 1982 is going to be a 53-year week. You get an extra week of revenue, an extra week of sales, an extra week of everything. Traditionally, Warner put that week in the fourth quarter. You can basically put it wherever you want. They traditionally put it in the fourth quarter. But this time, at the last minute, they decide to put it in the third quarter instead, which is legal. They're not breaking any laws doing that, but they gave themselves an extra week of revenue in the third quarter to try to make up for this growth shortfall. Then they went to Kmart which, as I said, has become a big customer in the video game industry. They pressure, ask favor, whatever, however they did it. They get Kmart to accept its full holiday order on October 1st, when they would normally accept their full order later in the year. Because they accepted the full order on October 1st, they could book it as revenue for the period ending September 30th. The combination of adding on the extra week and getting Kmart to take the full order meant that they were able to show an incredibly strong record third quarter. But of course it was a record third quarter. They were basically putting holiday sales in the third quarter with this Kmart thing. Just dancing right up to that line of cooking the books. Exactly. So they were able to tout what they called the best quarterly earnings in WCI history. But it was all smoke and mirrors. Instead of doing the best, just tone it down a little bit. You see, it's all about the stock and making the stock run. And the reason that Warner stock is always so valuable is they beat their own growth every quarter for 30 straight quarters. It's Wall Street capitalism run amok, but that's what the company does because they all want the stock to run. And that's how they get the stock to run is consistently showing year over year growth. I always thought that the whole exceeding the growth that I had the previous quarter or whatever thing is almost like a pyramid scheme. And there has to be an upper limit somewhere. Yes, there definitely is an upper limit somewhere. And Warner's about to find it. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, hit it hard, apparently. Exactly. You know, the product's still backing up at Atari, because for the first time, there's enough demand to meet supply. For the first time, retailers and distributors don't need everything that they ordered. For the first time, they have a choice of viewing, and they don't have to get all of their product from Atari. All of this is starting to back up, so on November 17th, 1982, Atari revises its fourth quarter projections down by $81 million, which is a 50% cut in their projections from August. They're starting to get worried that maybe things aren't going to be as rosy as they had hoped. However, they still have one last card to play. 
their hope all along has been once the holiday shopping season really gets going, everything's going to move, they're going to get reorders, and then they're going to clear out most of the inventory in their warehouses. The holiday shopping season really gets started in earnest. Thanksgiving weekend, Black Friday, all of that stuff. Thanksgiving weekend happens. All the Atari people come in on Monday to get their reports. They start calling around, figuring out what happened over Thanksgiving weekend. Nothing. Nothing is moving at retail. Nobody needs to reorder. It is apocalyptic. I guess on the ground level, no one was buying the video games or there were just so many video games that the public was satisfied and then they bought their normal amount and left. Yeah. I think probably a little from column A, a little from column B. Not a huge amount has moved, not enough that they need to replenish. Of course, games from other companies are moving. As as we've talked about before, Atari thought they had things all sewn up because they had all the hit licenses and that's all that matters. But Coleco came out with Donkey Kong on the VCS. Yes, I know. For those of you who listen to a lot of different podcasts, Mike Katz said in interviews over and over and over again that Donkey Kong was exclusive to the ColecoVision for the first holiday season. It was not. We have all the proof in the world, including advertisements in newspapers, etc., that Donkey Kong was released on the VCS in holiday 1982. Donkey Kong is taking away sales. Pitfall. Turns out you don't need a license. If you just have a really good game that looks just enough like a hit movie, Cough Indiana Jones, Cough Cough, when you squint at it, it turns out you don't need the license. So Donkey Kong is stealing sales. Pitfall is stealing sales. The games that Atari hoped were going to be the big movers on their end in the holiday season, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, and just barely getting to market at this point, E.T., end up not capturing the imagination as much, especially Raiders. E.T. actually does okay, but E.T. is only just now coming out. E.T. basically comes out in December. Might have been some that trickled out in late November, but it basically came out in December. So the E.T. cartridges that they do move haven't even gone on sale yet. Of course, nobody needs to reorder those because they're not even out yet. Raiders ends up being disappointing, so they don't need that. I think Pac-Man starts moving some again at the holiday season after slowing in the summer, but I think there's already so much Pac-Man out there, you know, that nobody really needs anymore because it had entered a slowdown. Turns out that the big holiday hits are things like Donkey Kong, Pitfall, Parker Brothers entry into the market with Frogger, another big arcade license that Atari doesn't get a hold of in their Empire Strikes Back game. It's like a lot of the hits in the holiday season are not Atari. Atari's moving some product, but they're not moving enough product, and so nobody needs to reorder. So all of that stuff that's backed up in warehouses is now really backed up in warehouses, and it's not going to go anywhere. After that, they have to do another restatement. Manny Gerard on December 7th asks for a new projection from Atari after this kind of disastrous Thanksgiving weekend. Atari revises their projections downward by another $53 million. And at this point, their guidance is so messed up. Everything is in such a disastrous state that they have to go public. Throughout this entire time, Warner has been continuing to tout to the analyst community, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. They've been able to do that legally, essentially, because their projections have continued to show that everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. Now, after these two refactorings in a row, 
in November and December, where Atari has revised its projections down by, at this point, over 100 million, like 130 million, like a lot. They're now at the point where there's going to be such a shortfall that they need to release new guidance. And that's something people get a little bit confused about here. A lot of times this is reported as Atari reports its fourth quarter results and they're a disaster. Well, two things. It's Warner, not Atari, because Atari is not the public company. But the other thing is this is not their statement of their fourth quarter earnings. Their fourth quarter runs from October to December. Fourth quarter isn't over yet. They don't announce their earnings for the quarter and for the year until January. But, as I said, a public company has a duty to provide guidance, what's called guidance throughout the year, which is basically where they say, yes, we're looking at probably doing this. Yes, we're probably looking at doing this. They're supposed to give regular guidance so that investors have as much information as possible when they're making investing decisions so that a company that's doing poorly can't con investors into thinking they're doing great and get a lot of money from all of these people that invest, and then surprise, there's nothing here, and it all falls apart. So they have to provide guidance. Now their guidance that they previously given is so out of line with reality because of the way that the Atari situation keeps getting downgraded, 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 that they have to issue new guidance. They have to issue a correction to their guidance. That's the famous announcement on December 8th, 1982 where they state that fourth quarter earnings will be roughly half the level of 1981. Instead of growing 50% year over year, their profits will only grow 10 to 15%. I know we've talked about this point before because we brought this up in the crash before. That first part of that statement is the important part. Because if you're just looking at the announcement where it's like, oh, well, yeah, we thought we were going to grow 50%, but our profits are only growing 10%. Someone who doesn't understand the market might be like, okay, I mean, I guess it would have been better for them to make more money, but they made money. That's good, right? Companies in the black, profits, everybody celebrate, right? That's what I would think. Yeah, it's just like, okay, we have more money coming in than going out. Company successful. However, that's not how public companies work. Public companies have to show a path to growth because the only reason people invest in a company is because they feel like the money that they're investing today is going to provide enormous returns tomorrow. People always make the famous comparisons like if you had put $5 into Apple in 1984, it would be worth $2 trillion today. You know, people often say that about stocks, but of course, you know, the market is way more complicated than that. The fact of the matter is, people are trying to put a dollar into the market to make $10, a dollar into the market to make $50, a dollar into the market to make $100. The only way you get that rate of return is if there is phenomenal growth. We're talking about professional investors. We're not talking about people that contribute to a 401k and just hope that they get an average 12% growth through to their retirement. We're talking about the people that are becoming millionaires, billionaires by playing the markets. They don't want just that slow, steady 8 to 12% growth. They want humongous returns on their investments. So you only get that if the company continues to grow and get bigger and get bigger and get bigger. For 30 quarters, Warner has grown more than in the comparable quarter from the year before. So you're not comparing second quarter to first quarter of the same year. You're comparing like second quarter 1982 to second quarter 1981 to second quarter 1980, etc. And across all of those quarters, quarter one versus the year before, quarter two versus the year before, quarter three, quarter four, 
for 30 consecutive quarters. You know, there's four quarters a year, so that's over seven years. I mean, that's a long time. For over seven years, they have delivered increasing growth. But now in 1982, the fourth quarter, not only are they not growing year over year for the first time, but it's not by a little bit. Earnings are going to be half of fourth quarter 1981. It's a disaster from a stock perspective, from a public company perspective. Warner's stock immediately falls 17 points in trading on December 9th. It gets beat up for several days, and the disaster is in full swing. Now, at this point, we have established what went wrong in 1982, a very exhaustive look at Atari in 1982. In part two, we will take this into 1983 and 1984 and see why even though Atari suffered this major wound in 1982 because of market conditions, it did not necessarily have to be fatal. We will see in part two how decisions taken around this time, again, mostly related to distribution, turn what could have been a serious but recoverable wound into a death sentence. What really struck me as interesting here is that you actually had way more alarm bells going off before the actual event than we were portraying in our earlier episode. Mm -hmm. I also find how you got sort of everyone drawn into the moment, even though you have parts of the company saying, hey, there's a major issue over here. You have management and other people who have a really vested interest in things being good that they're going to deny it up until they pretty much explode. Yeah, I mean, I think there were a few things going on here. I do think there was wishful thinking. I do think the people at the top did have a vested interest in it continuing to go well, and I think there was a little bit of wishful thinking that it would continue to go well. Number two, I, I do think they did underestimate a bit. I don't think anyone quite realized how demand was actually going to, to keep up with and surpass supply. I don't think they understood what the impact of the mass merchant discounters entering the market heavily was going to be on shifting the competition more retailers ordering more product that didn't necessarily have a great understanding of how the market worked and ending up ordering way more than they needed, which you know led to inevitable cancellations down the line. There was management turmoil at Atari at the time, because uh, we didn't talk about this, so we've talked about this in other episodes near the beginning of the year. Ray Kassar hired Perry Odak to be the new head of the Consumer Products Group which consisted of the Consumer Electronics Division, which was domestic, and the Atari International, which did the international sales of the home consoles. Neither Mike Moon nor Anton Bruhl, the head of Atari International, were happy to have this new management level placed on top of them. I think there was friction that was created there, and that, that probably led to even more confusion with people not being able to track things as well. We talked about in, in another one of our episodes how they also didn't do a good job of tracking receivables just to kind of rehash that, they knew what receivables they had with each individual company. They knew what the outstanding bills were and what inventory they had sent to any individual retailer. But whenever they received money from a retailer or a distributor or whoever else, they didn't apply that money to the specific receivable that was being paid for. They just applied it to the oldest receivable on the books for that company. Which meant that I don't think they always, even though they knew they had some product backing up at their own warehouses, because they could track that, it was their own warehouses, 
I don't think they always had a great sense of what product was moving and what product wasn't with their business partners because they weren't accurately tracking. If a bunch of Pac-Man sold this week and they got money for that, they would apply that to maybe some Space Invaders that sold last week. So that may make it look like that Space Invaders is doing better than you think it is. But in fact, those Space Invaders are still on the shelves. It's these Pac-Mans that sold. I do think that they didn't necessarily have a great moment-by-moment understanding of what was going on with their business partners, in part because they weren't matching receivables correctly. I think there was management friction that probably led to some confusion. There was certainly all the problems with distributor infighting that I mentioned. There was also some shakeup in the sales force. Their salesman, Bob Fott, left to join Activision. He was replaced by their marketing guy, Ron Stringari, for the second half of 1982. Ron Stringari had a retail background. He came from Sears, and he was a buyer at Sears before he was at Atari. So, I mean, he did have some background in retail and in sales, but his focus was marketing. I don't know that he was as laser-focused on some of the problems that were happening in distribution. I think he was perhaps just based on—he he passed away recently, but I did talk to him before he died. And just based on what he said his priorities were uh, during his period in charge of sales, which was promotions and securing end cap space and, and all of this kind of retail positioning stuff, I think he might have been more focused on what you might call the marketing side of the sales equation than the distribution side of the sales equation. Perhaps someone that was more experienced in sales and distribution may have been a better fit for the company's uh, salesperson in that crucial period of time. Again, I don't know that for certain, but I'm just throwing that out there as a potential stumbling block. It feels like there were a lot of individual factors, a lot of market confusion, both within Atari and outside of Atari, that created this perfect storm that allowed Atari to really misread the market and assume that their big inventory pileup was going to clear out at the end of the year when, uh, spoiler alert, it will not. The other thing that I think is key to point out to you is Atari was lost in that mindset of, we own 90% of this pie of video game. Mm-hmm. In reality, that's more like 45 to 50% of that pie. 58%, according to the estimates I have. I have numbers. You were very close in your back of the napkin figuring. <laughs> yeah, that's the estimate. Okay, so we'll say 58%. That's still 22% of the market that's not them. So that's 10, 12% over-ordering and production on their end. They probably assumed some level of growth there. So mm-hmm. on top of everyone else over-ordering, they probably had a significant issue there with reality. Yeah, exactly. It was a perfect storm of a lot of factors. It led to this situation. They follow up on their earnings through a revision announcement. They make the announcement on the 8th. On the 13th, they follow up. At that time, they announced that Perry Odak has been relieved of his duties as head of the Consumer Products Group. He's really a scapegoat because he wasn't there long enough to affect anything. He was there for like eight or nine months. A head needed to roll, and that's the head that they rolled. They said that the main problem was that post-Thanksgiving sales were disappointing and order cancellations were high. Basically, not only were people not reordering because of the sales were slow after Thanksgiving, but retailers that realized they had ordered too much also canceled orders. It created this great big glut for them. Plus, on top of that, because of the third-party influx, they had had to greatly increase their advertising spending. Their marketing spend was going up as their sales were going down, and it just uh, created way too much of an issue. That's kind of where they were at the end of 82. And, and like I said, we'll, we'll see how that just spirals out of control 
1983 uh, in our next episode to, to completely bury the company. We will continue in part two of Atari's unstable relationship with logistics <laughs> next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create World, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworld.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. You can also help out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Now that this episode is done, off to play Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs>